0: Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Thanks so much for joining us for part two of this episode on how CASA advocates can meaningfully include the young people we work with. In decision making and case planning meetings with our wonderful guests Anita Horner and Lisa Merkel Holguin from the National Center on Family Group Decision Making at the University of Colorado's Kemp Center. Just so thrilled to share the second part of this conversation. Um, let's jump back in. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I was so thrilled to be speaking with you all about this because. Um Lisa I first encountered your work um when I was taking a restorative justice class um and you know what restorative justice theory instructs us that those who have experienced harm that it's actually can be a healing opportunity for them to be able to feel that they are participating meaningfully in the justice process for their case and um and so in thinking about like putting that lens on child welfare, it just really opened my eyes to the ways in which we could do such a better job of treating youth as um, experts in their own lives. So you've already kind of spoken to what I th- what I was kind of thinking of, one of the bigger barriers to, to working to better include children and youth in their family meetings, which is that sense that it's just not an appropriate place or we need to protect them from the content of discussions. Um, and so help- helping us realize like, that the intention of protecting them is good, but actually the impact of that can, um, can actually not be protective, can have the opposite impact on the youth and make them feel excluded and silenced or like um, they're not having a voice in what is going to happen to them. And so the importance of that. So I'm thinking about like there might be instances where, um, for whatever reason, a, a young person's not able to attend the meeting um, or doesn't want to. Um, do you have thoughts on how we could still work alongside them to meaningfully carry forward their voice into that meeting so that it is still part of um, the, the decision-making
1: process? Absolutely. I, I mean, there are several ways. Uh, and I would uh, really underline the last word that you said, which is meeting process. It's not a one-time thing. We should be involving children and youth throughout their involvement with the system, and so uh, I really want to highlight that. And so the the ways that you can involve and include them are things like, uh, of course, you want to, as I said earlier, prepare them, uh, spend time with them, talk with them about what what are the decisions that need to be made, and how does that how do those decisions uh, impact them? What will the what what will their the decisions mean for their lives going forward. Um, and who else is involved in the decision-making and what, you know, what does the process look like? What are the steps, those kinds of things. But throughout that, you can then go back and ask them, how do you want to be involved? And so it can be that they can, uh, help with writing, uh, maybe in invitations or drawing invitations, uh, for people to participate, um, or cr- designing something on the computer. It can be, um, that they, um, decide they want to create a recording, uh, whether it's a, vi- a video or audio recording, of what they want to say. Uh, it can also be that they uh, they draw their feelings and or what it is they want and what it is they need. Perhaps they feel uh, better expressing themselves that way uh, rather than through words. Uh, You can also have them people. I mean, kids have created uh, various songs or uh, like rap or, you know, things like that that they've they put together uh, to, again, try to get what messages uh, they want uh, to have come across. And um, they can also, you know, if it is that they want to share it with whoever their support person is, they want their support person maybe to talk for them. And I'm going to say a little bit more. Lisa, you know, alluded to support persons earlier, which I really appreciate. And uh, support persons, um, you know, they they choose who their support person is. And it may be that they choose uh, someone within their family system to be a support person, or they choose, um, you know, someone who's been a, you know, a, a service provider to them, a, a Again, uh, you know, their their worker, their uh, therapist, their casa, uh, their teacher. I mean, it could be any of the above. What we need to be careful of is for those of us who are in paid positions or volunteer positions that are not going to be a part of their lives after they exit the system that it's important if we can to try to also have, uh, another support person, uh, be there besides, uh, you know, someone from the system as a support for them, because, um, that way they, they, um, they have, um, someone who also maybe has a little bit more knowledge about the family itself, um, and, and can speak in ways that could be helpful to the family to hear. So, um, you know, I, I think it's good for children and youth to be able to talk with um, whoever their support people are prior um, and and uh, say, OK, well, you know, if I feel like I can't say this, will you say this for me or how do you want me to, you know, uh, and and just be able to kind of sort that as out, out as well. So it can be in whatever way the child or youth wants to express. Um, and um, it, I would say that. It's okay if they change their minds at the last minute. I will often tell children and youth, if, you, if they say to me, you know, I want to attend this meeting or I don't want to attend this meeting, um, I'll say, that's fine. Um, you're most welcome. You, you know, if you change your mind at the last minute, that's okay. We will make sure that you're there. If you need to take a break during the meeting or want to be want to step out during parts that uh, don't feel comfortable to you, then that's also okay. So I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but... Uh, those are the kinds of things I think that are important to consider,
0: yeah, absolutely and do you have what would be your guidance, I guess and like we you know I know in my experience I worked with uh, I was appointed to cases with kids who were newborn up and up to you know teenagers who were seventeen um, do you have thoughts on like how do we navigate working with children of of different ages different like developmental stages um, to make sure that I guess, the opportunities for it, for participation are developmentally appropriate.
1: So I'll, I'll start with that. And Lisa, if you have things to add, I would welcome uh, your input. Uh, so what I can tell you is that when we first started this work in the United States, as Lisa alluded to back in the mid to late 90s, um, I would say on into the early 2000s, what we had done amongst us within the U.S., as determined our own age limit. Anybody under 12 would not participate in, in these meetings. And um, what happened was, I mean, because we thought, well, that's a reasonable age, because that way, you know, they kind of know what's going on. They're able to speak for themselves. They're able to tell us what they need, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we got uh, all kinds of feedback from all over the world about that. About well, why are you setting an age limit you know uh, we don 't why why do you all feel the need to do that? And it really challenged our thinking about how are we involving and including and why are we setting these limits? That was about us and about our needs and what we thought was the right thing to do. It's very much a system way of doing things rather than a more organic way of families doing things. And what we recognize is that every family is different and families involve and include children of various ages um, based on kind of their, their ways, their culture, their traditions. But we should not be limiting that. Uh, we as a system. So, what we did was we pulled back on that. And um, I'm very glad that we did because really anybody from newborn all the way through. Whatever emancipation age is, um, is is welcome to participate in any way. Obviously, with like a newborn or maybe even a three year old, um, you know, it may be that what they're able to do is, uh, you know, everybody in the family gets to get their eyes on them and uh, see how they're doing, and maybe hold them or, you know, give them a hug or whatever might be the case. And the three year old might be one who's uh, maybe going around and and doing the introductions. This is my, this is my auntie. This is my grandma. This is my, you know, and then you know, maybe hugs and kisses, and then they're off to play somewhere, you know, so it's, but that's important, that counts, and it often keeps families really grounded in what they're there for, and cent- centered and focused on what they need to address. So I'll turn over to Lisa and see if you any more.
2: When we look at the res- research around the world on children's participation in family meetings, We need to give a nod to the Scandinavian countries in England, Wales, and Scotland because they have done a remarkable job of really understanding children's perspectives qualitatively. And one of the things that children will say when they participate is that it's very therapeutic for them. It can be actually very healing because it makes them realize that there are all these adults who care about them who came out to a meeting to try to problem solve around a really challenging situation that's facing their family. And we've talked a lot in this podcast around the notions of protectionism, right? And, and exclusion, excluding children as a protective measure. And really what, the, what these stories of, of children and young people are telling us is that they have deep knowledge of what's happening in their family systems. Um, we are protecting them from nothing. Um, in fact, they probably have the most um, clear version of the story because they live it. And so, I just think it's really important. In addition to all the ideas that Anita had around um, children and their participation, you know, they can also become the person to motivate other. Um, family members to participate in addition to drawing invitations and um, those types of things. We've seen young people, actually children and young people kind of work in tandem with the uh, family meeting coordinator or facilitator to try to inspire their family members to come to meetings um, that uh, where decisions will be made about their lives. So I think that's kind of another kind of an interesting strategy um, of how young people can, um, that children and young people can participate. Just one quick qualification, because I know Anita talked about that age 12. Um, The policy actually that got written out of a Western state in in the United States back in the mid-1990s or maybe late 1990s was actually even a little bit more nuanced than that. It was children 10 and under could not participate, Children between the ages of 11 and 12, service providers would decide whether they were uh, developmentally appropriate to participate in these family meetings. And 12 and older, it was kind of assumed that those children could, children and young people could, could participate in these family meetings. And what it really, and we have so much more work to do. I feel like as a field, we've progressed in our thinking about how we really, put into play the nothing about us without us. And it is tends still to be a conversation that we see kind of rearing its ugly head, at least in the United States around, well, maybe not those children or those children really aren't appropriate. Or I think this would harm a child to participate in a family meeting, et cetera. Um, So there's more work to do. Um, And I, and I just, like to give a nod again to our international colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, um, the UK and Scandinavia and the Netherlands who are really push and Canada who are really pushing the envelope around children's the the right of children to participate in making decisions about their own lives. Um, we have a, we have a, a lot of learning still to do. We are on the right path. Um, And I think the sky is the limit.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a powerful point. Um, and what you were saying, Lisa, about, um, how we're coming from this place of trying to be protective, but maybe the message that we're sending by actually like excluding children is that their voice is not important or that their experiences and their own self-identified needs and desires is not important. We're modeling for them that, uh, you know it's that we're not talking to them about these things if 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 we're not talking to them about these things and then um maybe that even additionally sets it up for them to find to to make it harder for them to talk about these things themselves or um and so i think one challenge that we might see cuz you know like i mentioned i'm not sure i i ever went to a family meeting, a permanency conference, or other case planning meeting where a youth themselves was present, and I don't know if that surprises y'all. I, you know, sometimes uh, youth would be present at court, be able to speak to the judge, but even that was pretty uncommon in my experience. And I feel like I've learned so much since in the years since I've been, you know, directly involved in casework about um, what a missed opportunity that is, and how powerful it can actually be when we subvert that and and change our practices to really be inclusive of youth. Um, You, in the article of yours that I read, you and colleagues write about how children and youth in systems that are designed to serve them often feel like their needs and opinions are just overlooked. And so I think one challenge for us in places where it's not already the norm, even for for children and youth that are twelve and older, to be participating in these meetings can be like, well, how do we even start? How do we start to move towards that that kind of um to doing that and and whose job is that to talk to them or ask them how they might want to be participating and and even suggest some of these creative strategies that y'all are talking about. Um, and so do you have any words of advice for advocates about, um, how we
1: begin? So, yes, I do. Um, I, first of all, it's not just one person's job. As far as I'm concerned, it's anybody who, who works with that child or youth, anybody who interfaces with them to be able to give a consistent message that their voices and their participation are important and uh, to be really ready and willing to follow that up by talking with them about how they can be involved about what their concerns are about what kinds of things they can, they can think about and say, and, uh, you know, decide about, um, about making sure they understand that, again, the pressure is not on them. That's not our intention, that the pressure will be that the adults will make the final decisions, but that we we want to know what they have to say. We want to consider uh, their wants and their needs. We want to make sure that, um, that they are feeling as though uh, they're being heard um, throughout their involvement with the system. And so I believe that is on all of us as um, any sort of provider, anybody who's working with that child, we are all accountable, in my opinion, to get ourselves um, into a place of being able to have those kinds of conversations with children. That study that I referred to earlier um, also mentioned that um, it's the that that it was that they had interviewed uh, caseworkers and caseworkers said, well, the reason why I'm not involving children is because I didn't learn how to do that. I didn't learn it in school. I haven't really learned it on the job. Um, And so I'm not really comfortable with it. I don't really know how to do it. So that is a concern. And at the same time, we can't let that limit us. We've got to then start to do our own work and figuring out how do we involve and include them? What are the things we need to do to build our skill set to be able to have these conversations and hold ourselves accountable? So, and and the other point that I will make about this, because I feel it's important to emphasize this, is certainly it's ongoing conversations, um, you know, throughout their involvement, uh, and you know, a special doing special preparation before each meeting and or decision that we're involving them in uh, to make sure that they're really understanding and that uh, they they know what their role is and just how it all is going to unfold. But it's also during that process what's their role look like and and how can they do that and let's talk that through and again, it's also after that process, so being able to debrief with them both after if it's a meeting that they've attended um, you know immediately following that meeting and how that felt to them, but also days, weeks, and months afterwards, because depending on what the decisions were that were made. That may be going on in the back of their minds or in the front of their minds. And if they're feeling like, for instance, if they're living in a foster home and the foster parents aren't able to really have those conversations, what do we need to do to get the foster parents up to speed with being able to process how this might have felt to the child and how the decisions resulting may impact the child? And the same thing with the CASAs, the caseworkers, etc. So what I'm saying is we've got to hold ourselves accountable to continue to have ongoing conversation conversations with them about their involvement in decision-making just like we have uh, 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 just discussions with them about what the concerns are and what still needs to be done before the the case can be resolved.
0: Awesome. Well, y'all, I just am so grateful to have had this time with you and get to learn from even just a little bit of your vast expertise on this. I, um, and before we wrap up, I know there's just so much um, to cover on this topic and, and so much more um, that our system could could learn. Um, are there any kind of final thoughts, something that we haven't touched on yet that you want to make sure that um, our advocates hear?
1: I actually would like to just add another piece to this. Uh, I think that um, we've got to recognize that I, when you said um, that you'd not seen a youth be involved in some meetings, Maggie, when you were talking about that earlier, uh, I would, and I, I, I shook my head. Yeah, that's not a surprise to me. Uh, what I think happens often is that not only is it that people are not comfortable with involving children and youth, and again, getting to that place of protectionism, maybe too extreme of exclusion of children and youth. I think it's also not trusting the adults. It's not trusting the family group, that the family group, uh, if they know that the children are going to be involved, children and youth, that they will conduct themselves um, in a way um, that you know, really includes and involves those children and considers their needs and uh, their presence. Um, And and I think we've got to recognize that families uh, love and care for their children. They may make mistakes. They may do some things that have caused harm, but you're widening that family group circle uh, so that there are others who are not involved in the crisis who um, also love and care for those children. People are going to make sure that those kids are taken care of during that meeting process. And we need to trust that as well. And so that I think we continue to think that we're protecting the kids from their family. And again, that does not serve them well because if they if we do our work well, then they're going to reunite with their family, whether it's their, the parents or caregivers they were removed from, or whether it is the extended family that they're going to be with. And they need to have involvement. Children and youth need to have the practice of being able to speak their wants and needs um, prior to uh, you know whatever decisions going to be made at the end of the case. Um, And even if they end up not um, going home to family and uh, being adopted out or something to that effect, uh, we know where they go when they turn 18 or later. Um, And we're not doing them any favors by not giving them them a chance to to learn how to communicate what they want and need um, and what to do if there's disappointment. Um, We're not doing them any favors if we're not giving them the chance to work on that while we're involved with them and supporting them through it.
2: So my exclamation point, um, so first of all, thank you, Maggie, for inviting Anita and myself to talk with your audience. We really appreciate it. And um, I guess I will leave your audience with two questions. um, And that oftentimes my good friend and colleague, Kevin Campbell, asks, because I think this just kind of puts the exclamation point um, on the entire podcast. And that is we need to be thinking about in these family meetings and throughout all kind of processes that kids are involved in when they come into the child welfare system. Who does this child belong to? And who belongs to this child? And I will leave you with that to kind of your audience to ponder as they kind of continue the good work that they do with children and families. Because that answer should guide how we work.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, those are incredibly powerful questions that we should constantly have on our minds, guiding our advocacy. Lisa, Anita, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening.
2: Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to CASA on the go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas CASA.